Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Dr. Chuichui Tan. Chuichui is the founder and director of Bayo Global, where she focuses on bringing organizations closer to their global customers. She does this by generating market, behavioral, and cultural insights that help her clients to make informed business and design decisions. With clients such as Marriott, Spotify, Netflix, BBC, and Google, it seems to be going fairly well. Before starting Bayo Global in 2017, Chui Chui was Experience Strategy Director at CX Partners, a UK-based experience design consultancy where she led engagements for clients such as Asana and eBay. Chui Chui is the author of A Pocket Guide to International Research and has spoken at conferences and events across the world, including UX Live, E-Commerce Southwest, and at Google HQ. And now she's about to speak with me on Brave UX. Chui Chui, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks for having me here. It's great to have you here, Chui Chui. And something that stood out for me when I was doing my research for today's conversation, and it's not something that's uncommon with UX practitioners, but it's that you didn't start out in UX. You actually studied mechanical engineering in Malaysia, and you went on to work for Panasonic. But that's not the thing that really stood out for me. It's that you only worked for Panasonic for a short time before you moved halfway across the world to Belfast, Northern Ireland. What was so terrible about <laughs> mechanical engineering that prompted you to move from nice, warm, sunny Malaysia all the way to Northern Ireland? Um, yeah, that's interesting questions. So yes, I did my um, undergraduate in mechanical engineering in Malaysia, and that was mechanical industrial engineering. And I did work for Panasonic for I think it's a year and a half, if I remember correctly. Um, I love that job. I do. I did love that job because we. I was kind of being part of the team to build older set. That was like how many years ago? 17 years ago, probably. It's kind of building MP3 and CD and disc players and everything else. The reason I moved to Belfast, it was because, I don't know, like um, for many years, I felt like I always want to see the world. At that time, my geography was very, very bad, to be honest. I'm very ignorant in terms of like world outside Malaysia. And I wanted to go out to see the world and the world being, I don't know why, the UK. And then part of me feels like I, if I don't do it now, I probably wouldn't do it in the future. So for a long time, I tried to convince my friends to backpacking with me to the UK or to the world, wherever that is. But in Malaysia, especially at the time, backpacking and leave your job, your life and go backpacking it's not a thing that you do. You normally will finish your school and go to university or colleges and then find a job and then get a car and a house and then get married or, or not get married or whichever is quite, you know, you don't take break in between. So I get to a point that I feel like I really wanted to 
kind of go out to to see what the world is like and i decided to say okay the easiest way for for me to do it is to study again and i always wanted to study something more creative i'm not very i'm creative but not creative enough to be a professional what i thought at the time and to be honest before i got into the mechanical engineering course i actually already applied and accepted and paid a deposit to do animations as my main course and in one of the private university mmu multimedia university in malaysia but in malaysia i don't many people might not know and um, because chinese malaysians and so in the government if you want to go to government or public university it's quite hard to get in um, because there are quarter for Bumiputra, uh, Malay to get in and then the rest, you know, you have to fight for that and space. And you have to do very, very well if you are non-Bumiputra and to be able to get into public government university. And I was lucky to be accepted and the university I applied at the time was the only university that doesn't require me to do A-level. So after all level, you can go straight. And that university is University Technology of Malaysia. So all the courses they have is technology, uh, is kind of engineering courses. Hence, I went for mechanical engineering. Not that that was my first choice. I wanted to be engineers. So I always wanted to do something creative, like animations or something to do with music. So I decided to study something completely different since I'm going to the UK. So I chose uh, music technology. So I got into Belfast to do Master in Music Technology. Why Belfast? My dad asked me the same questions when I told him I'm going to Northern Ireland. <laughs> it's like, you can go to Australia. Father, huh? <laughs> it's just like, you could go to Australia cheaper and closer. And why do you have to go to Northern <laughs> Ireland? And um, I have no idea. I think that at that time, um, there were only two university that do music technology, which is University of York and Belfast, um, Queen's University of um, Belfast. I already missed the opportunity to apply for University of York, hence I went to um, Belfast. To be honest, I actually didn't know about anything about Northern Ireland at the time. I didn't know about the conflicts or anything. I was so ignorant. So hence... What was that, what was that like for you? Let's, let's hmm. go into that a little bit. So you're, you arrived, you're Malaysian Chinese, you've sounded like you'd not really traveled widely beforehand. You move all the way to Northern Ireland to study something that you hadn't studied before, mm -hmm. didn't know the culture that you were moving into, and you then experience what was called, as far as I understand, the Troubles. What was that experience like for you? What was it like on those first few weeks when you arrived in the country? What did you think? How did you feel? It's funny, like, I have been thinking about that because, you know, now you ask me to do something like that, I probably would say, oh, maybe not. You, know? you think too much when you're younger, you kind of don't think about anything like that. Yeah, I, I think apart from the only trip I have flew out internationally before that was to Perth and Bali. That was just holiday with my family. So that was the first time I flew to the UK on my own. And yeah, I got, I got here and um, to Northern Ireland. It, it was good because they actually look after international students quite well. So they pick you up in the airport and have the student union or, or things like that. And there were a big group of uh, Malaysians also in the hostel or the hall, uh, student hall. Although they're probably a bit younger than me because I was like, a lot of them go there to do medicine. 
but I remember very, very vividly, like I went to register to, for the course and it was just a very, very small class. Um, it's only 11 or 10 of us. A few of them already did Bachelor of um, Music Technology in Queens, Belfast already. So this is their stepping stone. And so they have a group of friends. So there's a younger group, which is like two years younger than me. And then there's an older group people like more mature students i'm kind of in the middle although i tend to kind of mix with the younger younger group as well but uh, i remember like Belf northern ireland have very strong irish accent <laughs> northern ireland irish accent <laughs> i couldn't really understand them they were very very nice those course mates and they were trying to talk to me because i was the only international student in the in the 10 or 11 people i spoke english but very much malaysian English and to be honest like I, I I don't think I can I'm quite shy as well at the time uh, shy in a way that I'm not confident and um, not confident with my English and everything else so it's, it's kind of quite I don't know like I, I don't think tend to think about that as memory as it was hard at that point to communicate with my course mates what was hard was my course itself because like you say I never studied I play piano but classical um, music but I actually hated computer at the time. So I never liked doing programming or anything like that. And that course is because it's master in music technology, they assume everyone can do programming already. So maybe six courses in the whole year, maybe three or four are actually programming related, Java and a super collider and you know, a lot of different type of programming language. So that's one thing already. They assume you already know. So they went straight into coursework. I have no idea how to write hello world even. And then worst case, worst thing is actually I don't understand the lecturer's accent. <laughs> so we have Northern Irish, uh, Spanish, Portuguese and American, but I just can't understand. I couldn't understand them, couldn't understand what they're teaching and couldn't understand what the, the coursework was. So that was the hard part for me that I remember if, if I recall the whole, whole year, that was the hard part because I have to work so hard to, to understand what I need to do from the very beginning. Mm. Um, it's reminding me of something that I just saw on LinkedIn last night and I won't be recalling it verbatim, but it was a picture of a gentleman who was holding up a piece of paper, which I think said something to the effect of, if you hear an accent, that's the sound of bravery. And he was obviously an immigrant to wherever mm. he, he was living at the time. And I think what you've just told us there is really a good example of the, the level of bravery you have to move all the way around the world to a country where you don't speak the language firsthand. And then you have to put in all this extra effort just to comprehend what is being asked of you to pass this course that you've invested your time and energy into. And it obviously worked out fairly well for you because you did graduate with your master's, Chui Chui, and then you went on to also do a PhD mm -hmm. in HCI. How do you go from not understanding really what is being asked of you to being, you know, a PhD in human-computer interaction at this university? Um, that came by chance, really. So yeah, I did finish with, uh, I did complete my master in, um, in distinctions. So as good as I could get. <laughs> 
uh, which surprised me. And then because my master's dissertation was about um, audio games, so I created audio games. And one of my lecturers approached me to say, actually, they got a project or a funding project um, across collaborations with university and companies like BT, Siemens and, and University of Lund and, you know, like different people, European projects. And they have three years project and they can fund PhD students to do the, the work as well as to do, well, to do the research as well as to do the work as part of the packages. And that project is about helping visually impaired people to access graphics or anything text or using multimedia interfaces um, because of my dissertation. So my supervisor was asking me if I'm interested. To be honest, I at that time, I didn't really like research. <laughs> I thought researcher <laughs> is very boring. <laughs> and um, Hopefully you don't feel the same no. way. <laughs> so, yeah, so I thought, like, do I want to do that three years in the same topic? And I did this music. And I always wanted to be creative and everything. So should I go to kind of explore being an intern in somewhere, a music label company or whatever, to kind of do music recordings or anything like that? But it feels like really hard to say no to an offer to pay you, especially for international students. It's quite expensive as well, you know, the fee and everything. And not only they pay for my fee, they give me one grant, £1,000 per year. At the time, it's quite big for a student in Belfast. So, you know, you can live on that. So I decided to do that. It's funny, my, when I leave the country, my dad said, one year, you're coming back after one year. Very typical Asian parents, like one day our kids will be in. And here I am in the UK for almost 18 years now <laughs> <laughs> how's your relationship with your father still good still good i think they give up asking me when i'm if i'm coming back for good um, but yeah so i decided to do that but it was um another challenges again brandon and because okay fine i, I know how to do a bit of programming but then this project means that i have to do c plus plus another language which I kind of have to read, kind of read, learn again. But not only that, I, my brain wasn't trained as a researcher at the time. I was, you know, I was engineer. And to be honest, in Asia, I think still the case, um, less so now, but still the case where in Asia, the way we are educated very much on copy and paste, just sit and listen and you don't have opinion, you know, and even in our culture, you don't have a lot of opinions, you know, like in, in Mandarin, there's a word like if the kids are good means they are obedient. They So in Chinese, the translation is like you listen to what you are being told. So that's considered as good kid. So I don't have much opinion on anything and I don't have I don't know how to think about opinion, but when you do PhD, the first year is about literature review. You have to review what you read and have opinion. For the whole year, I keep reading and reading and reading. I have nothing to say. And my supervisor um, was struggling. It's just like, what do you think? I just like, I have nothing to think about, you know? It was really, really hard to switch that. Although now my friends say, what happened in between then? Like you have so much opinion <laughs> from no opinion, <laughs> so much opinion. <laughs> So yeah, that was, um, and then because it's about helping visually impaired people to kind of access graphics, right? Using multimedia interface like tactile, haptic, and audio and things like that. So it, it kind of touched upon HCI. To be honest, at that time, HCI is still quite new-ish. There's no such, I think, I don't think usability exists yet at the time. 
or definitely not UX. So you have HCI or Kai conference, like computer human interactions conference, and which is a big thing. So I kind of accidentally get into this area really, because it's about testing with visually impaired people and getting understanding the, how they use uh, technology, how they use screen reader and, you know, all these things. So that is how I kind of fall into this area. And then, yeah, when I start finding jobs and there are a few usability company at the time and, and CX partners as one of them. And that's how I get into it and start to evolve together with the industry, really. Well, let's fast forward 12 or 13 years from that to the current day from your time at university. You're obviously someone that's not afraid of a challenge and someone that can face adversity and face it well. You're now three years in or so to your own cross-cultural design and research consultancy, mm -hmm. Bayo Global. What is Bayo Global about? What do you help your clients to do? Basically, it's to, under, to help them to have a holistic view and a full picture about their customers in different markets, really, and then kind of use those insights and the knowledge and understanding to say, okay, what does that mean to our business? How, what does that mean to our design, our products or our services? So yeah, that is essentially the key of it is kind of like to see things from a very different angle to kind of have a proper view of, okay, you are not, you are not talking, you know, UX is talk, talking about user experience or customer experience. You kind of understand your customers. That is one layer of it. If and then the cultural elements and the context of the countries actually add to another layer layer again, because that is obviously it's going to influence how people behave and what they need and their mentality and what they are familiar with. So that is essentially what I um, Bayo Global is kind of help the customers do to understand what aspect they need to look into and and then say okay what we should do with that. So it could be touching on their design of their products or could be on their marketing materials or how they market or could be their business proposition. How, sh how should they, how should they promote their products or how should they sell their products on, and should they have a different propositions, different strategy for different countries. And that there are obviously some big challenges that you're helping organizations to overcome. Why? Why did you start this? Why did you create Bayo Global? You know, what is the mission that you're mm. on? I think that has to go back to, I don't know, it's interesting. I was thinking about it, this the other day, like how did I end up doing this? Because from UX, right? Like I start off just doing a, a general, generic, I say general as compared to kind of specifically on culturalization, general user experience into what I'm focusing now more. I think when I started UX and or usability and UX and HCI and all those, we are very much on kind of doing understanding users and testing and then wireframing and, you know, all IA information architecture and company want to re-platform and, and you just do the design and everything else. But when I was in CX Partners, uh, Merit International was one of our key clients and there was one of the few companies at the time that understand there's a need to, to kind of understand their customers in different countries. So 
I was kind of being lucky in a way, but also I speak different languages that helped to put me into say, okay, you might be the right person to kind of take up this project. So I kind of start working with them as the key consultant or expert in global insights. So I, I travel with them to Germany, China and Japan and different countries for Merit and Ritz Carlton and kind of help them to understanding and work together with them to understand their customers, just not just on the website, but also when they are get into the hotels, what does that mean? And what is the, what is the differences between Middle Eastern guests that is important to them as opposed to Japanese guests and or people from Russia and, and Latin America and so on. So that is kind of get me into starting writing a book about international user research and the pocket book that you talk about is to understand how you actually set it up to do the research and how do you kind of choose which country to go for and what, how do you kind of implement your research kind of analyze or curate your, your insights and to find similarities and differences between different countries. But at the time, I'm very much on just doing the research and then say, what does that mean? And then the design of the website. And it's very light touch, if you like. So I left the company not having a plan actually to say, I, I know I wanted to work for myself, but I don't actually know what I really wanted to do. I thought of doing training for as a therapist because I kind of like as you know, sometimes researcher could be a therapy anyway. But then eventually I say, actually, I'm quite good in what I'm doing internationally and actually quite niche and, and my background and my knowledge, um, I can pull together international research project very easily and very, no matter which country. So I thought actually, and I have a, a big network as well uh, in terms of local teams and who I work with and everything else. So I thought actually, I'm just going to do what I'm do well and good. So. That started um, three and a half years ago, and it has evolved since then to be uh, in terms of my how I see internationalizations and also the, the things that I offer. So like I said earlier, before that was just doing research and understanding what are people in different countries need and then say, okay, and then most of the time the clients actually took it back and say, what do they mean? I don't really involve as much um, on that. So since I work for myself and start working for um, companies like Spotify in different teams and, and different countries and everything, it kind of evolved in a way that the framework I'm using, um, not just about what users said uh, in user research, but also looking into more, like as I mentioned earlier, like holistic view about the country, like look into their history. Like what does that mean about their history? Uh, what, what happened to them in the last 200 years or 100 years? And how did that if, uh, affect the way people do things or their mentality and, and political issues and their infrastructure set up, you know, and all the different elements that could touch on how a society being shaped into? Because that's important because otherwise you kind of go in and say, okay, people say this, they want this. And okay, you ask why, because they want this, but you actually didn't know why exactly they want this, right? So under having those elements is really important to kind of spot the opportunities that your, the competitors might not see because they actually didn't see as deeply into that. Um, and you might be a, a company could be more ahead in terms of what they offer but also to kind of fill in the gaps in terms of not taking everything on the surface level. Mm. So let's have a chat about culture then before we dive into the depths of cross-cultural research mm -hmm. and UX. 
What is culture? It seems like such a complex and massive topic. How can we help our listeners to wrap their minds around what it is and how in the context of creating products and services you can work with culture or work to understand culture to do that effectively? Mm, yeah, you're right. You're right. Culture itself is really big word. Like it could mean anything. Even sometimes if you Google or if you put it in podcasts and say you want to listen to any podcast about culture, and a lot of them came out as um, organization culture. It's not like company culture, a country's culture or anything like that. So it's it's a very very big word. What does that mean really? Sometimes I I kind of try not to use this word, but if I don't use this word, it's hard to kind of convey that message about the differences between different society or culture uh, or, or countries what is culture so I, I think there are a lot of definitions but for me it's more about how different society or community behave and aspect and think that could be culture could be their social norm or could be their religions or could be like i say the history of the the, the countries that put where they are in uh, in the context of where they are so it could be anything that that kind of influence people's conversation and how they interact with each other. I don't know whether I answered that well, but it's a big word. Like it's really hard to kind of, if you look at Google dictionary, everything is kind of, it's not capture everything that you touches on, especially when it comes to different countries. And this culture means language as well. It could be language could be a subset of culture. So let's think about a specific engagement then. So culture in itself is a really broad topic as we've just discussed. Let's bring it down to thinking back to your last example, your last engagement perhaps where the client came to you with specific need to know something about a culture. What was the approach or the, the methods? Like how do you figure out where to start with such a, a, a large potential subject area? First of all, always it's depending on where they are with that market, right? So it could be they already, they haven't launched yet. They are about to launch in that market or before they launch, they want to know what happened. What do they need to know about the country and their culture? Again, culture is that word. Or it could be they're already there, but not doing very, very well. They want to do better. Or it could be they do very well already. They want to see what is next, um, next step, right? So when they come in, it's normally was to say, okay. And also that is one of the, uh, the, the thing. And then the other thing is the objectives of that um, help that they need. And also the products they are selling or the service they are selling. So it's kind of like a lot of different areas to say, okay, what do we need to know? And how much do you know about that market already or that culture already? And it's kind of break that down to say, okay, maybe it's about launching in a new market, for example. I work with, for example, I work with Spotify in a few markets that they, before they launch, um, they launched in the last year or so, um, like uh, South Korea and Russia and, and Africa as well. So it's kind of like understanding. And also it depends on which team I work with. So if it is work with um, product team, it's about, you know, what product features they should look into and how people listen to music. So, so for example, in South Korea, it's a very different world when it comes to music, right? And they have this super fan. They buy CDs. They can buy 200 copies of the same CDs 
and then throw the CDs away and then keep the cards inside because of the idols that they have. And you never know which idols you're going to get within the band. So you will buy a lot and then you go and exchange and things like that. And then they have this competitor for Spotify called Melon, which is a local ones, but everyone use that. But in a way that you can go in to say, okay, we need to compete with Melon. But actually after the research, we understand that there are different things they use it as a different thing. So they use it to stream constantly 24 seven in the background, in the at home or in the background and the phone, just so that their idol can go onto the top chart. So they are not used that to listen to music as such. So they use other apps, for example, could be Spotify to listen to the music as a daily basis. So it's kind of understanding the different culture or different things that they need to do. Whereas for Japan, Spotify was already there a few years ago, but not doing very well. Not just because Spotify not doing very well, but any like Apple Music or any streaming are not doing very well. So we wanted to go in to see, okay, why? And to understand the cultural really, like music listening experience and culture. That's because in Japan, people still using CDs and buy CDs and play CDs. And you can rent CDs from the record shop or library and then rip it off and then return it back again. It's legal. It could possibly like two euro or something like that. So we went in to understand why the couch, why, why that is and how that experience could be translated into digital experience and what are the things that we can understand the, the things that because they like keeping in Japanese, Japan, they, they have this culture or they like keeping things as, you know, uh, old things and broken. They kind of seal it back with gold as an art, you know, they like having that kind of ownership as well. And also, yeah, so it's a lot of cultural elements within that. And then what does that mean? Like, can, and then they have this karaoke culture that they go singing, even though they work really hard until nine, 10 o'clock, they go karaoke because it's. So on, on the ground, what does that look like? What is, what is the research method or methodologies or mix of different research methods? I mean, is this a combination of market research, user research, some other kind of research that, that we're not familiar with? How does it look? So yeah, you're right. So it's a combination because like I say it's holistic view, right? You need to do a lot of things to fit in the gap. User research normally will tell you quite a lot already, but I used to say just do user research and that's enough. But actually slowly, uh, last year I wrote an article say actually user research itself is actually not enough anymore because you need to fill in the gaps that the users actually might not tell you because not because they don't want to tell you because they actually didn't aware what they are doing is a bit unique or why they behave the way they behave, right? So user research is one of the big things that we, we definitely do. Um, so that could be like, you know, it could be one-to-one -one research. Uh, it could be ethnography. It could be diary study. It could be um, anything that we think is useful to have. So like, Music listening is good to have kind of following them around to see where they listen to music, but it's kind of not possible because they might be doing in the gym or in the shower and not listen to music. You can't follow <laughs> them on that. So we actually get them to do diary study and to write journals and things like that and send us photos of the one karaoke or, and the South Korean project that I talked about, we actually have a super fun day. So we, we follow one super fun per day to their house, take photos of all their merchandise products and talk to them, go to the activities they go to. So one of them, we have to queue up at six o'clock in the morning 
to go to a recording, their idols was going to just record five uh, five minute sessions, pre recording sessions. We have to queue up, and we have to go through the process like buying the CD so that we get we are allowed to queue, and but we are at the back of the queue because we didn't buy download the songs or we didn't stream the songs. So you know we follow every every steps they go through and and kind of understand the excitement they have um, in terms when they are following their idols as well. So that is kind of re re user research part. And that research is sometimes is important as well to talk about, you know, to understand the elements, like what actually angles we should go in and have a look. And, you know, that normally you do that before you go into user research. So to, to have a basic idea, so you know which area you might want to prop into or might be interesting to kind of find out more. Um, having said that, um, I also sometimes do some, um, death research after that as well. So like for example, one of the research I did with Babylon Health, a digital health company, we went to Rwanda and Kenya to kind of understand how people with HIV and TB and mental health and their journey and their pinpoints and, you know, what, ha what happened and how to support them. So that was part of the, Gates Foundations to, to kind of funding to kind of see, okay, what can Babylon Health do to help them? So instead of creating another digital services without understanding the ecosystem of medical health and everything, we kind of went into people's houses, like some of them car can't even get in. We have to walk 10 minutes to get in. And it's quite heartbroken to, to hear a lot of stories and see, see what happened. But one of the insights we get was, People were saying, yeah, we have this um, support group that we always collect money together to the group. And we just like, why? And then they say, we stop. I stopped going because I don't have the money to contribute, which is not great because support group is really good for them. So, but the money they use, it wasn't for to pay for to anyone. It was a community so that they can use it for to kind of pay for someone might need more help than others, so they give all the money to that person or they do a project together like sewing or any projects. But it wasn't clear to us why they do that. Um, you know, money is already quite tight. Why do you do this kind of community? It's not until I kind of come back and do more research. There's this, there's a culture, I can't remember the name of that. And um, there's a name for, for that activity where when they, they start to ind be independent and um, Kenya, they, they are prime minister or president actually kind of can build the countries by the government themselves. So they kind of create this culture so that everyone helping each other. So it kind of start to embed in the community and society, but they didn't even realize that was because of that whole thing started like years ago when they started independent. So that kind of death research after that kind of fill in the gap as well. So that is desk research and then user research. Sometimes we do expert research as well. So we talk to experts before we talk to the users. And um, for example, in Kenya and Nigeria for Spotify, before they go in, we say, okay, we actually don't know much yet. Like what, even where to start? Like, let's do that. Obviously, uh, Spotify have their own data scientist team as well to look into different data and they buy data for us. But we company with the qualitative insights from the from the experts, like could be lecturers or professors, could be DJs or could be journalists and, you know, different people to give the insight from different teams. So yeah, it's yeah, a combination. So it sounds like yeah, it's a combination. You're triangulating these different sources to try and identify what you don't know and also the opportunities that might be interesting for the organization to probe into and then apply a different method to mm -hmm. learn from. 
I'm interested in something that you said there. You touched on going into, I think you mentioned it was Rwanda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned dealing with people that are living with HIV. And that, at least to me, that sounds like a relatively heavy and could be quite confronting situation. And it's obviously uh, quite a personal situation mm-hmm. to be invited into someone's home like you've just described there. How do you, as the person that's leading that research, how do you look after yourself and how do you deal with some of the things that you, you see and learn out in the field? How do you put them in perspective? How do you, how do you, how, yeah, how do you look after yourself in situations like that, which seem quite intense? Yeah, no, that's a very good question because, so when we went out, we have the main clients from London and then we have some clients in Rwanda as well. And they did come along and we did tell kind of warn them in a way that it's going to be heavy. Like even we do that, they, some of them really like take it really hard um, to, because it's not just HIV, it's the mental health in Rwanda. You know, they have genocide happen actually not very long ago. Um, and the, the impact that people have, it was really hard to ask questions, not ask questions, but to be honest, a lot of some people actually really glad we were there because it feels like no one actually listened to them before. We were there a bit of like therapies and they, some of them even asked us when you're coming back again, kind of have a way for, for us to talk, uh, to listen to, to, to what they are going through. It's, it's hard, like each, each session's coming out, we all went very quiet <laughs> in a car for a while um, in that. I, it's funny to, to think back as well. It's kind of like, it's not funny, but it's kind of like I, when you ask me what takeaway I take out from that, and it's two levels really. One is personal and one is more the research work related. On the personal front, is it makes me think us living in this world, like in our world, in the small things that we nervous about, we kind of, you know, we take advantage, we kind of like, oh, it's like first world problem that I'm and like, oh, what should I eat? Oh, I'm annoyed with this. I'm stressed out with that. And, but you look at the way they live, like they hardly have anything and they can starve and they have a lot of people to do. One of the old lady, she was only 39, uh, just like 39 kg kilogram. And uh, I just like, I'm thin and I'm light and I can't believe she's even lighter than me. And some of them like quite similar age to me, like a few years older than me. And they are grandmas and they have to look after their grandchildren because their grand their daughters have HIV. And it's just really hard to see what to be fair, it's kinda of like when I came back, I kind of changed my perspective again. But it's really annoying in a way that when we are in our own world, we st- slowly forget about it. You know, that was a year ago. Like you, you slowly forget about it and it's slowly to start to kind of complain back again in your own world um, about same thing. And sometimes I have to think back again, say, okay, stop complaining or stop being stressed out about these things because there are a lot more you, can, you are grateful for than other people. And yeah, the mental health story that you listen to them, the consequences that they actually have to get back uh, like go through now is horrible i can share one or two but i don't i don't know whether we want to go to that deep but baby loan health has been good because they did offer say they because they are actually on the virtual health services in the uk as well so they did give me a family code where i can call if i want to to get some therapy or to talk to some counselor or anything like that but yeah right. but i didn't use that 
So in a situation like that, yeah, we are getting into some fairly heavy territory here. In general with research, there's a level of power imbalance between us as researchers and our participants Mm -hmm. and ethics and ethical considerations often guide some of the behaviors and practices that we put in place, you know, like informed consent. But in a situation like that, where you're someone from another culture, well, predominantly a Western culture or working for a Western organization, Mm -hmm. and you're entering someone in this case from an African culture who is comparatively less advantaged in their economic and social and and um, health situation in that aspect. What were the considerations that you built into your research plan or how you conducted yourself in that situation uh, from an ethical point of view? How did you think about that and what did that look like? Yeah, um, I think we, first of all, we went in wasn't in a way that we are experts. You know, when we went in to talk to them, we didn't go in as like we're experts. We just come and learn and trying to save you or save, you know, find way to solve all your problems. We didn't go in as that. We're very, we have local teams that I, uh, my local teams actually help out to kind of organize everything. And we have their social worker, which who they trust very much in that society and community. So we went in with very ground, like very grounded in a way that we will just sit on the floor if you want to. It is nothing. And we kind of like do whatever that's fit, make them feel better. And yeah, I think it's being very empathetic and kind of being there. And the question we ask is very soft to get in to kind of ask the questions and very polite, say, oh, not touching in a way. And sometimes they very emotional and we, we cannot be there and being empathetic. I think that is very important rather than trying to kind of, I have this research, I have to find out what is happening and, and talk about that just solely on that. If they're comfortable to talk about it, they will share. If they don't, and we, we, we cannot say that's fine and we kind of look into that. We are very, very cautious about the, the photos we take as well. You know, obviously us, if we can take their, their environment, some is to kind of bury anything in the house, just a, a very dirty mattress. And, you know, that's how they live. We kind of very careful in a way that we need to take it so that we can bring the story back to the people that actually weren't there and kind of like, to, to kind of bring their story to life. But in some way, when we get there, it's kind of very careful to kind of gauge how they feel about that. Sometimes they actually so have that rapport with us. They, they offer to give us anything they might need to. I kind of like, we don't, we, we don't have a tactic. Uh, you say, do we have a procedure or something like that? We don't because we just all very grounded and go in as a very, and we, we love and we kind of, together with them and sometimes some of them very like very more light waiters and we we laugh if they laugh and we 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 kind of get really quiet and down if they are quiet and we kind of follow where they are and kind of be like you say energy together with them you have to be very sensitive Mm. yeah no it's it's interesting i'm really glad that you brought this up again because you know, it's easy to do one country on country and then you kind of have that and then kind of forget. And this is really good to kind of remind myself again and um, personally as well. Yeah, I'm really pleased that you could share that with us and also with the people that are listening to this episode as well. You know, there are going to be some people out there that are skeptical about cross-cultural research and design. You know, they might say things like, 
why should we invest all this time, energy and money into localizing our design and our products? How are we going to know if it's going to pay off? What do you say to them? Are they just being arrogant? Is this stupidity? Is it another form of Western cultural imperialism? Mm-hmm. You know, what is it? What do you say to them? I think it's really de- depending on where they're coming from. Some is arrogant, right? Some is like, I know it all. It should be fine. Or stereotyping. I know all English speaking is the same. Or I know in, in this country, they all behave like that. Or we have enough. And some of them uh, just can't see the ROI directly to say, okay, how much would that bring me? So I was actually about to post an article um, because this one audiobook company came to me and that person actually looked after their Middle Eastern market. And he's, he said, we know nothing about our Saudi Arabia's. Do people even listen to audiobook or anything like that? Um, so I kind of say, okay, this sounds like you know anything about the market and, you know, we can start from the ground and actually even with research, uh, we do a, a bit of research. It actually gives you a lot of insight in terms of not just your products, your propositions, but also your marketing, you know, give it enough in, insights. But when he proposed to their top management in Sweden and they kind of say, mm, what is the ROI? How much will we get? Like how, how, what is the percentage of increase of retention or um, how much churn rate we can lower down and everything else? It doesn't work like that, right? It's kind of like if you, what is the impact in terms of if you don't do it, you just go out and do whatever um, strategy that you think is going to work. And it feels like a bit like you kind of shoot a lot of arrows and just hoping one of them will get into the board or center of the board. And he actually came back to say, oh, they, they said like uh, we did very well in investing in Facebook ads um, in the other markets and we have chain rate or we have increase of subscription rate. We should just do that in Saudi Arabia. But it feels like that is the case in a way that you, there's a lot of perceptions that if this works in one country, it will work in another country. And it doesn't work like that because people behave in a different way. You know, the, the, do they even listen to audiobook? And if they are, like, what are they using for? And who is, is that the woman that is a listener? But w- women in Saudi Arabia probably don't have a credit card. So it's the man who pay for credit card. Like, who are you targeting to? Are you targeting to, to the, and you know, there are a lot of all these questions that, you couldn't make a decision. You couldn't just say, okay, we are going to do this and do that. You can invest a lot of money on that and you might be lucky you get one of them with a investment back. But if you kind of focus on understanding your users first or your market first, then there are a lot of elements that you can kind of understand on that. I was talking to someone the other day as well. It's like, Sometimes the ROI could be direct and in, in, indirect when you understand your customers and in different culture and in the countries. One direct ROI is you thought you're going to spend a lot of money on changing your subscriptions plan, for example, or changing your price or whatever. And you think that changing it will save money or introducing a new payment method in Romania or in Czech Republic or wherever. But actually, after you do the research, you turn out actually people don't care. Everyone actually using credit card debit card when it comes to music or something they use regularly or audiobook where they use. Then actually it saves you money from implementing something that you don't actually need to implement. That is already a direct ROI, right? And then you have an indirect ROI means you do the research, you kind of find the insights. Okay. And then see, okay, what does that mean? And then you, you have strategy and then you execute the strategy and that will brings you growth or 
lower rate, uh, lower in churn rate or whatever rate that they are measuring. A lot of times, some companies, they, they were asking, okay, how much can I have the rate gone out? I just, I can't promise a certain rate because once you do the research and we kind of work with you together, say, what does that mean? You have the strategy. It's up to your team to execute that. If you don't execute it that right, it's not our responsibility to say, oh, I'm going to give you 10%. And it's kind of educations in some way to kind of tell them that is the case and changing their mindset. But people who actually come to, I'm being lucky, a lot of my clients actually, when they came, they already understand the benefits and everything. I have odd cases like the audiobook company and it's trying to have to convince them and let them see there's a benefit of doing this before they kind of, with those kind of company, I probably will go slow and small packages first or small let them see there's a benefit and then say okay how do that and then they, they might be more likely to kind of invest a bit more understanding their customers and users you know chui chui i think that sometimes some people are just so afraid of finding out answers to questions that they're not sure about that they find comfort in charging ahead mm. and not asking those big questions and, so, and sometimes that makes me wonder just how much and it's something that I've talked about on the podcast with other guests before and we don't necessarily need to go into it in detail now but just how much of that is a result of our education and you mentioned your education in Malaysia and also some of the impact that the Malaysian Chinese culture has had on you in terms of not having an opinion mm. um, we we get very much conditioned to behave certain ways and it sounds like you've found clients that believe in this type of work and don't need to necessarily quantify everything when it's very, very difficult to quantify. You also mentioned that there is a cost of not doing this research that's very difficult to prove in advance, but that cost is that you might fail in that market by not understanding mm -hmm. the culture of the people that live there. Now, something that's been in the media of late is organisations from one culture having to backtrack, apologize, or alter their position when they offend people of another culture. Now, the example that comes to mind for me is the NBA's drama at the moment with China. How does politics affect or what role does politics play in the considerations that organizations need to have when adapting their products or services for another country? Mm. Politics is definitely, you remember earlier on, we talked about holistic view and we talked about history and we talked about uh, political and context. So politics is definitely one thing that you don't want to offend and do, do it wrong because sometimes you can just apologize and back again and sometimes it's hard for you to get back to where you have to be because the damage has been done so one of the very obvious one is geopolitical when it comes to china there are a lot of companies make a lot of mistakes by for example married a few years ago they commissioned a survey being done by an agency and the agency accidentally put i can't remember hong kong or taiwan or macau as a country and that backlash and Merit website in China has been closed down for two weeks and outside the UK Merit China is the most sales um, they have they were shut down by the government for two weeks and has to apologize and following that Zara and Delta I, I remember they make similar mistake um, by doing that so that is kind of geopolitical issues that you have to be very very careful especially in countries that are very sensitive on that yeah and I think 
there's another one is politics is one thing and all. and then the other thing is as well is religion as well and um, because it's really important that you don't want to offend anything that is yeah people care about that and um, i think th there's one example i used to use is kind of it's a game um, i can't remember which game like one of the shooting games that they have quran in the toilet and that kind of raised a lot of anger um, recently, Aldi, um, the supermarket in Aldi as well, they, they kind of have a masala curry, beef masala curry for, and from India. They kind of say it, and Hindu actually didn't, doesn't eat beef. Um, so it's kind of like people actually be a bit cross and feel like it's insensitive when you do the marketing incorrectly. So those are the things that it's kind of basic things. I say basics, right? It's important and fundamental that you don't want to get, get it wrong uh, because that is a back, back ashes on, on that. So I, I, I come up with a, a, a ladder called three, um, three level culturalizations, which the bottom bit is this kind of fundamental things you, you shouldn't do wrong. If you go to a country, um, you shouldn't offend anyone or politically kind of offend any government or, uh, any parties within that countries and and then the second level is level where it's kind of the basic things that you should give your customers or users the basic experience like for example you want to address them in the right names you want to capture their names and last name and first name right you know in in malaysia i'm called tan chi chi in, in the uk i'm called chi chi tan so you kind of want to make sure your fields are putting it properly so you when people don't read label they put in their names correctly and you kind of uh, address them correctly and then numeric format or the address and also payment method There's, those are the things that basic things that you should make it right to your users and then the third level is more like cultural elements that i talk about like you delight them by providing something even more that they need and delight their experience even in a matter for the second level, actually, I created something called Global Design Guide um, to, for different countries where people could, to, could, could kind of follow from naming to fonts and to payment method to social network that they, they're using, um, which hopefully will be helpful for people who are actually um, trying to design or serve their users in different countries. Chuchu, that sounds really useful, and I will definitely link to that for people in the show notes. There's obviously uh, some really low-hanging fruit that just makes sense for people to get right. Now, I'm just conscious of time. So, so far, we've been speaking about cross-cultural design in the context of an organization from one country trying to appeal to people from another country. Something I've been wondering is how the practice of cross-cultural design applies within a country. For example, my assumption is that Western countries are less homogenous than non-Western countries, with multiple large, growing and vibrant ethnic communities. How are we best to navigate that level of cultural complexity within our own countries? Um, I kind of want to challenge the, the one of the statements you made like in the western countries people sometimes people feel like um, it's more homogeneous if you take america it's definitely not homogeneous at all and in such a big countries even everyone speak english most uh, most well and but then if you take one state to the other there's a lot of cha uh, changes in terms of how people behave their mentality and their thinking already and and to be honest, like in a lot of American small 
cities or villages or, or town, if you want to call it, there are a lot of people actually could feel similar living in a similar environment as Africa in certain area. For example, a lot of people actually still didn't, couldn't read and write in America. And we done some research in, in for, for one client as well. Some of them actually, they live in a trailer that actually they don't know how to read or write. They can't call. They have letter from the government. They don't know what that means. And their living context and situation is actually not great. They don't actually have medical health and with, uh, from insurance or any government or private support. So if you're kind of comparing with Africa, actually there's certain elements that you, sh you kind of can share the similarities between them. So, um, but those are the things that you don't see when you talk about America as a whole. So every country is no matter how big or small, there is always certain elements that there's a differences between them. And in certain aspect, everyone should be, could, could feel the same or look the same or behave the same. But in another aspect, it could be different. You know, it could, when it comes to, for example, when it comes to buy, um, booking holidays, it might be all the same within the UK, for example. But then when it comes to buying insurance, it might be different from the north to the south or, you know, it's kind of depending on or when you're buying uh, food or grocery, the mentality of the west and the east might be different again. So it, depending on what what we are looking into and the aspect and the the area and the industry and you know all the elements there are always the similarities and differences when we always talk about cross-cultural differences as well it's not always trying to find the differences but sometimes it's also to find the similarities as well because then with that you could say okay these are all the same we can apply similar strategy or design or but then we have some small tweaks for to cater for the unique differences between the country as well yeah, I, I used to hear like sit in in a in a shared office area, and we, I can hear someone say, "Oh, Australia and New Zealand is very the same. We can group them in the same together." And then I kind of really wanted to go there and say, "No, it's not." Um, depending as on as a New Zealander, I can tell you we really don't like that. So if anyone's <laughs> thinking about launching a product in New Zealand, please don't lump us in with our Australian cousins. We are very similar, but we also have our distinct very differences. Very different. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for shouting that. <laughs> yeah, it's so easy people to make. And, you know, you used to be, oh, Africa, the whole Africa is the same. It's so different, you know, South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, Rwanda, um, all these different countries. And then Asia itself as well, it's like so different. Even Southeast Asia, every single one is very different. Yeah, in terms of, uh, I'm just about to start a research uh, with a, a online job board company in Southeast Asia and, and Australia and New Zealand. And, yeah, we, for the recruitment itself, there's so many different elements you have to look into to kind of finding the right people and right groups and all the differences so that we can capture as, as well as a whole as possible. So yeah, never group anything. It's fine to say, okay, once you do research, you have similarities and that is fine, but there's always, there's a slight differences that sometimes would make the big difference in your business time mm. so chewy chewy this seems like a good time for us to bring things down to a close my final question for you is thinking about all the things that we've spoken about today for the design and product leaders that are listening to this conversation what is the one thing that you hope they take away and apply to their products and services 
if and when they're entering another culture? One thing. Um, <laughs> it's probably, hmm, how do I group them into one? So it's kind of like being curious and don't make assumptions based on your own stereotype or your own subjective view. I think that is the most important because you have to be open-minded to be to say, okay, I'm happy to invest a bit of money. Sure, you invest this, but then down the line, if you're thinking in the long, long term, it's actually going to be good than kind of saving money for the short term, short um, term as well. And so it's kind of like, one thing I'm really cautious as well is uh, sometimes a lot of companies or clients come to say, oh, we already done research and we already learned this and do that. But then when you look at the research, um, it's kind of very on the surface and doesn't really tell much and, or it's not very deep dive. And so there is a danger as well sometimes is to people thought they already done the research or they kind of commissions an agency or whatever to do the research. But actually they, they think that they already done a research and then have this insight, they are going to make the informed decisions. And actually that is a danger, a risk where the research is not done properly that kind of could harm them as well. So yeah, I think it's really important to kind of make sure the insights that you're getting as well. Once you open up your mind, be open-minded and do the research and kind of understanding your, your culture and the different culture and countries. And then also making sure that they are valid and give you a full question. Keep asking questions. I think that is the whole thing about being curious as well. Keep asking questions. Is that right? Is that true? And then why is that? And eventually you actually could see some a full circles or the puzzle. If you think of a puzzle, you can see more, bigger and bigger picture rather than just a small picture that you make a conclusion. But then when you see it, actually it's, it's the leg of someone rather than it's a hat. Um, it's their shoes rather than a hat. So, yeah. Lewis Rosenfeld t tells the story of the blind men and the elephant. Mm. I'm, I'm not sure if it's his own parable, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a very apt example to what you're trying to illustrate. Now, it sounds like from what you just said, it's know what your assumptions are, be curious, don't be afraid to go deeper than you think you need to, and um, very much make sure that you're approaching this research with clear understanding of what it is that you don't know so you can uncover that value. Yeah, don't save the money for the sake of saving money um, in the short, short term. I think that is important. That's right. <laughs> Take a long-term view. Yeah. Very important. Yeah. Chewy Chewy, what a great conversation. Absolutely packed full of meaningful stories and practical insights for people to take away. Thank you for so generously sharing those with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. And thanks for your great questions as well, because that made me think and kind of, yeah, bring out a lot of good insights that, um, and memories as well, going to these places and do research. You're most welcome. Chewy Chewy, what's the best way for people to find out more about you and Bayo Global? Um, my website is um, bayo.global, so B-E-Y-O dot global, G-L-O-B-A-L. Um, so you can find a lot of um, articles that some point, some of the points that I talked about earlier as well, and the global design guide. Or you can find me on Twitter on tree squared, um, tree squared, tree tree, <laughs> C H U I S Q U A R E D. Or I'm quite active on LinkedIn as well. So that's a good place to find me as well. 
Perfect. Thanks, Chewy Chewy. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great having you here. Everything that we've covered and that Chewy Chewy has just mentioned will be in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and products, don't forget to review and subscribe. And until next time, keep being brave.